True story. Years ago, I had no idea what Everly Stock was. I couldn't pronounce it. I didn't know they made bags. And then one day I came to work and the um, teammate that was in charge of buying bags for everybody had chosen Everly Stock bags, which looked kind of weird to me. It wasn't what I was used to. And I don't like new gear. But no kidding, I put that bag on my back, loaded it up with weight, and I've never worn another bag since. Everly Stock, they make not only the most comfortable gear, but the best gear. They're always trying to get better. Uh, I love that about them. And if you head over to their website and check out all of their bags and all their apparel, which is always being updated um, with the latest and greatest stuff, put in the ones ready code, you're going to get a 10% discount. So since then, uh, we've gotten to know the company. Uh, we had Glenn Everly on the podcast. He's a fantastic person, uh, veteran, former Olympian, and innovator. So make sure you uh, head over there, everlystock.com, put in the code ones ready, and get yourself some of the best gear that I've ever seen and or used in my life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ones Ready podcast. Uh, it is my pleasure to actually host uh, one of my long-term uh, yeah, long -term mentors uh, in combat control. Uh, actually, somebody who put me through combat control school as, as the commandant when I first showed up, uh, retired Chief Mike LaMonica, better known as L.A. Thanks for joining us. Hey, brother. Thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, happy to be here today. Yeah. I would believe me uh, between, you know, we, we had chief Lampy on last week. We've had uh, Tony Negron on as well. Like to have you as somebody who, you know, actually put me through combat control school and I kind of followed, I mean, you were at another organization while I was still on base, but um, I mean, we ran into each other in Iraq and uh, you've been a long-term mentor for me. So I, I really appreciate everything that you've, you've done for me and uh, combat control as a whole. Yeah, it goes both ways, brother. Um, I mean, you've, uh, <coughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you and your entire era have, have just inspired me. Uh, it's uh, we've, I got to watch you guys take combat control to a whole other whole other level, and uh, it's been awesome to see. But that's what we do, right? Yeah. That's what, I mean. You're supposed to constantly improve things and uh, build upon things and evolve. So, and believe me, we're we're going through that now. Which I do want to hit here in a little bit, but first. Uh, like we normally do, I want to kind of talk about, you know, who you are, what you're about, and uh, give people a little bit of background uh, about you so that, you know, people actually understand who, who they're actually getting to listen to. So why don't you deep dive into yourself a little bit? Sure. Uh, th thanks for that. So, you know, clearly, Michael Monick, I, I joined the Air Force in, in August of 1987, uh, and, and I did it for a variety of reasons. I, um, you know, I wasn't going to go to college. I knew I wanted to join the military since I was very young. All the people who I admired growing up were people who had a military background and they just carried themselves with a certain surety. Um, and they spoke with uh, confidence and, and you know, fact-based discussions. Uh, and they weren't really emotional people. They were just people who, man, they showed up and they, they were always there uh, ready to do the right thing. Uh, and I just admired that. So I, mean, I, I need to go learn how to be that person, right? Um, and then I wanted to serve my country. There were a lot of, a lot of reasons, but at the end of it, it was really about serving the country. Um, you know, so I joined the Air Force, and while I was in basic training, um, you know, I heard about combat control and pararescue, and I said, well, let me go check this out. Um, and I did. I, I, I did took the pass test, and, and I made it uh, probably by the skin of my teeth. Uh, and I showed up at INDOC after graduating basic training. I just <coughs> – um, 
being around that caliber of person, the person who wants to go to the next level makes you better. And I felt that about myself. And I, I quickly realized this is where I belong. I belong around these types of folks um, because they're going to make me a better person. Plus I'm going to get to serve the nation at the, the front of where the, you know, the military can be. Uh, you're not three or four layers removed from uh, the front lines. You're right there. And, and that's where I wanted to be. Um, I spent 24 years uh, in the Air Force, all as a combat controller. Um, I was fortunate enough to, you know, r rise up to be the chief of the group. So at the time, that was the highest enlisted position we had. Um, and that was quite an honor in itself. Uh, you know, in my career, I, I had multiple assignments everywhere from Washington State. I was stationed in Germany. Uh, I went and spent uh, a total of 10 years in our Tier 1 unit. Uh, I was an instructor at the schoolhouse. And I had multiple other uh, unit assignments throughout. Um, and was lucky enough to be on lots of deployments. Some of them, you know, post 9-11 frontline combat deployments, some of them humanitarian, some of them low intensity conflicts, other than war. Um, all of them were really neat to be on because I learned a lot about myself. I was able to understand better how combat control fit in the big picture. Um, and it ultimately got to surround myself with great humans my whole career. Um, and steel sharpened steel, so I feel like I came out better than I came in. No, ab absolutely. Um, and I like how you just gloss over, you know, you just hit wave tops. Yeah, did a couple deployments, no big deal, you know. But in reality, I mean, you were serving, um, especially at the unit that you were, you were at, you were serving uh, during some of the, the hottest times in, in OEF and Afghanistan. Um, and Iraq, for that matter, which is is in a deployed situation, is actually where I, I first kind of got to, a chance to somewhat work with you. So we were at, I don't know if you remember, but we were at Baghdad International during the the opening invasion. And the the one the one memory I have of you actually is um, you were with the unit that you were with, um, and you were in a, it was either strikers or panders, right? And I was actually working the airfield at that time. Uh, I think I was fixing some lights or something like that. And you guys were actually going out, uh, and I could be wrong. Was it was it Jessica Lynch or was it a, something else? But it, anyway, you guys were, were pressing out. And as you guys are leaving, I mean, you're literally hanging out the hatch going, hey, man, see you later. And I was still working the airfield when you guys came back. And it was just, it was just so cool to see, somebody who put me through combat control school and somebody who, you know, whether you want to hear it or not, a lot of people in the community uh, looked up to you and still continue to look up to you um, because you, you impacted so many lives within not just combat control, but, you know, AFSOC in general. And it was just cool to see you rolling out, go and hacking the mission real quick, a big one at that, and then coming back. I don't know if you remember that or not. <laughs> I, I do. It's, uh, you know, there's some timing can be everything sometimes. Um, so, you know, you, you talk about my career and how I gloss over some things. Like there, there are some things that are notable, not because I did them. They're just notable, right? A lot of people like to focus on, hey, I've jumped into combat four times and, and, and that's kind of cool. Um, you know, uh, another thing that, that I take great pride in is I was – I helped plan the invasion of Afghanistan. And then a year and a half later, I helped plan and execute the invasion of, of Iraq. Um, and those, <clears throat> those were times where we weren't evolving. We were making leaps of capability, right? Because 
when you're taking over a country, while the rules still apply, the propensity to bend them to make sure that we're able to accomplish the mission is greater, right? So we were doing a lot of things that just um, were relatively new. They were they were combat control mission sets incorporated into the modern day battlefield, um, and we just had a lot more latitude. So it was, it was really a neat, neat time to be in, you know. And when we talk about the timing of it, my last day at the combat control school. I, I was actually getting a briefing from the students going into the field training exercise. And as you know, that's the last 12 days of the school, right? So uh, it, it's my, my last class with the schoolhouse. I'm already going back to 24th. I knew that. Um, the only reason I was there is we, we had a big uh, inspection coming, and I was the guy running the inspection. So I actually extended my time at the schoolhouse. On September 11th, uh, Colonel Dula, who is the wing commander at, at AETC right now, his class was briefing their um, their uh, op order going into the field. Uh, and Brian Lottimer came down. And he's like, hey, you guys got to stop. And he turns on the TV, and we watch the second plane go into the towers. That's that's when we saw that happen. I immediately packed my stuff up and left the next morning to go to the 24th. And for the next 30 days, all we do is train to go over. right? So we leave in late September. We deploy over in early October. Uh, and you know we start getting it on immediately. October 19th was the night that we, we did our, our first jump into Afghanistan and, and subsequent missions. Um, so you're right. I don't talk probably enough about some of the things that I've done at a detailed level, which, you know, people just, they, they find interesting. Uh, but what, what I have to qualify is <clears throat> there wasn't somebody sitting in a corner going, we need a guy, we need the best guy for the fourth combat jump. Let's get Mike Lamonic on it. It was really a rotation of guys, right? Um, there was a, a small number of us. A lot of things were going on. You'd literally come off of one mission, walk into the ops center, look on the board for what's going on next. And that's you then put your head down and, and start preparing for that next mission. Um, we didn't have the time to select the mostest, bestest guy for the job. If we did, I probably wouldn't have been on all those jokes. Uh, a lot of it was I was available and, um, and I was a, an uninjured, willing body, if you will. Um, so, yes, they're, they're really cool opportunities, especially those four jumps. Um, I, I also don't necessarily qualify them as combat because I wasn't coming down in a parachute with somebody shooting at me, right? Um, they they were more what I would qualify as clandestine. We were going in not to hit the ground and engage the enemy. We were going in to hit the ground, avoid being detected, and do our job, uh, which then allowed us to, you know, expand combat capability on the ground. Uh, I hope that that's helpful uh, and maybe answers your your question about some of the things I've done. It it does. Uh, one of the one of the things that I find funny though, and I I, I was struggling to remember who actually was telling me this, and and then I, I believe it's it's Dan Schilling, actually was telling us this. Um, but so yeah, you've got you got the four combat jumps, and I know you're saying it's rotational, and I'll LA I'll allow you to get away with that and say that you know it's no big deal, uh, but the there was a fifth or a sixth combat jump as well, and that you you basically said, "Hey, uh, like I got to pump the brakes real quick because like if I keep getting these jumps, the rest of the guys are just going to they're gonna they're gonna frat me out." <laughs> that 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 that's actually so. Um, what happened there is I was in I was in Afghanistan on a follow a subsequent deployment, and. Uh, my, my buddies on the regimental recon detachment, who are the guys I did my military free fall with 
in Afghanistan in November, November 9th, 2001. Um, and I was over in Afghanistan as a leader. I was the lead guy with the SEALs at the time. I had a team of uh, Paris Committee and Combat Controllers with me there. I was also the inject point for the, the Joint Operations Center. Um, the officer we had with us had to go home on emergency leave, so I was filling two roles. And uh, my buddies on the Regimental Recon Detachment came over and like, hey, uh, LA, we, uh, <laughs> we're planning a free fall in three nights into Afghanistan to go gather intelligence on a high value target. And we want you to go. And I said, well, I'm honored, but you know, <clears throat> if you need a combat controller, I've got some staff sergeants and tech sergeants that can go do that. So I've got all these other jobs that are like, no, we want you. Uh, and, and that was a function of we'd worked together and we had a great relationship and you know, there's always the trust and you always want the known factor. Right. Um, and, and they kept pressing me. I said, look, man, if I leave my responsibility in the ops center, I leave my responsibility as the head guy with the SEALs so that I can go do something that a staff sergeant, a tech sergeant is really supposed to be doing with you. I'm going to get lynched. Like these guys are going to come <laughs> I'm now going to add another jump on my portfolio. Plus you don't need me really. You need somebody who's better. Right. At that point, I'm a master sergeant. I think I may even made senior. So I was on my way to senior and, uh, I'm not the best guy to go on that mission. If a young combat controller who's got um, better technical skills than me, maybe he's more fresh in current tactics, um, probably more agile, right? Like it's, as you get older, you're less <laughs> capable. Um, so I, I said, no, it's, let me get you a different guy to go on that, that mission. Um, so yes, that, that did happen. Um, and it was purely self-preservation. Because um, I'm sure I'd have had three or four E5s quartering me in kicking my ass if I'd have taken that mission. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. You know, the, the army, and I, I won't speak to the Navy necessarily, uh, but you know, the army E7, E8, E9, you know, they are not a dime a dozen, but they are like, you know, E7 at seven for SF. That's, that's the usual thing. E7, within set or at seven years. And then the rest of them, they're pretty much all senior NCOs. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, you did the majority of the planning for the invasion in Afghanistan, the majority of the planning for the invasion into Iraq. And you were in E7 at the time. Like we put a lot, and, and you and you talk about, you know, staffs E5s and then tech sergeants E6s that could have been that, would be better for those jumps and stuff like that because they're just younger, more essentially more tactically proficient. Like, I think it's fascinating the the amount of responsibility that we leverage onto essentially younger uh, and lower ranking people within CCT, pararescue, SR, and, and TACP. Like, it's it's pretty incredible that we do that considering you know the Army and and essentially and the Navy really rely on more seasoned folks for that. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I talk about this a lot, um, especially anytime I get a chance to talk about public because it is something unique that we do that nobody else does. Um, and, and, and while you're right, the other career fields kind of do that. Nobody to include like PJs and TACPs and, and, and the reconnaissance guys, they really don't do this as habitually as combat control. And, and the example I'll, I'll give is um, you know, a young man graduates the pipeline and let's say he came in at 18 and he finished in two years, right? That puts him at 20 years old. He's a baseline combat controller. 
He comes into the unit. He gets a six-month workup to get his joint terminal attack controller rating. And the whole time, he's communicating forward with the person he's going to relieve when he gets on the ground, right? We fly him into Afghanistan at the time into Bagram. They get on a helicopter. They go out with a special forces team. 12 to 18 army guys, you know, most of them senior NCOs who've been on the ground for three and a half months of their seven-month rotation. The combat controller that was there with them for the first three months is handing over to the new guy getting on the ground. This new 20-year-old gets on the ground, hands over. That dude gets on a plane and leaves. The previous guy gets on a plane and leaves. And now he's the only guy there. He, he's the guy. So four hours later, when a mission spins up, he's out doing the mission. He's new in country. He hasn't been at that forward operating base with that team. In, and he's never really trained with that team. What he brings to the table is his skill set and the fact that he's trained with the pilots. So he can translate the pilots' needs and the ground force commander's needs and, and make things happen, right? And, and you know, this actually happened to Brian Lottimer in uh, 2000. Six, it was January 2007. Brian Lottemuck got on the ground literally four hours later. He's in a firefight with dudes he's never met before. <laughs> he he actually had a bullet hit the hit the rock face right behind his head, and he went, "Holy shit!" Right? Um, nobody else does it. <laughs> the, the seals don't do that. The special forces don't do that. Marine Con, recon don't do that. Rangers don't do that. They don't take a guy right out of the pipeline, train him up. He gets in country with people he's never worked with. And now he's in a firefight and he's the only one, right? Um, and, and if you look at um, Dan Schilling's book, Alone at Dawn, about John Chapman, it's a great example of how needed a combat controller is, right? Um, I know Britt Slavinsky, he's the, the team sergeant that John was with. And, and I talked to Britt after, after this happened and Britt said, man, once John went down, we were at a loss. Like we knew how to do our jobs as SEALs. They could shoot, move, and communicate internally. But when it came to integrating with aircraft, even talking to them, they didn't know what channel to, to switch to, right? They were on their inner team and they were frantically flipping through their channels trying to get the air guy. Something that simple of knowing, you know, hey, I got to turn my radio three clicks to the right and be able to talk to the airplane. Uh, and, and we send an E4 20 year old to go work with a bunch of guys he's never worked with that are all senior NCOs. And when they're really stuck, it's not this calm, cool, collected combat. He's got a young officer yelling as here, get me fucking airplanes now, get this thing fixed. Right? Mm -hmm. All the pressure is right there on him. Uh, and, and we put those guys in that situation. Um, I also think we do a good job of preparing them for that. The whole time through our training pipeline, we talk about the importance of shoot, move, and communicate, know your job, know how to use your radio, be able to talk to airplanes and, and solve problems. And, oh, yeah, by the way, you got to keep up with everybody else that's on the ground. You, you can't be the weak link. Um, so when they graduate the pipeline, that is just part of their DNA. Uh, and they show up to the unit, and they're really engaged, ready to go. And then they go out and they do great jobs. And, and we did that for 20 years. 20 years straight, we had a squadron of combat controllers in theater doing that mission. And a lot of times we were sending 20-year-old young men uh, out to do that, and they were hugely successful. I mean, first deployment Rob Gutierrez is on, he gets a, a, a I think it's a silver star that really should be an Air Force Cross, right? Zach Reiner was on that same exact deployment. His next deployment, he goes on Earth Air Force Cross. Uh, and so, was he 21 at the time? Um, 
So yeah, probably. <laughs> it, 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 it's something I'm proud of in, in how we do. We, we put them in a tough situation, but we prepare them and they go out and they excel. So it's very unique to us on top of the very unique part of our mission of talking airplanes and integrating them into combat. That's, that is a whole other, you know, very unique part of our mission. So it's, it's something I'm proud of and, and I love. I, if I could go back and do my whole life over again, I wouldn't change a thing. It's my time in combat control was uh, incredible. And, and I was just around incredible people of all the services and I learned a ton. Yeah. Well, that's actually one of the things that we get asked uh, quite frequently because, you know, it's, even if you're doing four, six years, okay, you may be not dedicating your life to it, but you know, if you're going to do six years, you probably really have done eight years because you're you're prepping for you know physicality uh, for the pipeline and that kind of stuff. And it's um, I, I tell them all the time, like I I really did win the lottery with this job, um, not just for the things that I get to do, but for the opportunities I've had, the opportunities that I will have, the doors that it's open. But I mean, even more so than all of that is the people and the relationships I've had. I, I mean, we're talking from the pipeline, lifelong friends, um, whether they are cadre like, like you were with me, or whether it's just my teammates going through who are, who are now, <laughs> funny enough, leaders within uh, special tactics, which is really, really weird, but um, I'll, I'm sure I'll get over that one day. <laughs> um, but relationships, it's, it's huge. And, and that's actually one of the, the kind of mentorship points that you, you imparted on me at Comic Troll School is building relationships, networking. I mean, that's what kind of almost got you a, a fifth jump was relationships because they knew you, you had the credibility, you already had the working relationship with them and, and they, you know, went direct to you, which I think is huge. And that's one of the things that we try and foster is, Hey, relationships, you don't necessarily have to like everybody, but you need to be always networking and, and building relationships. Um, so how, how can we better do that just from your point of view? Yeah, well, I, I actually think we do a decent job of it, and in many cases better than other folks because we embed our folks in there, right? Um, and, and I'll use myself as an example. So one of the Rangers that I jumped, did the free fall with in um, November of 2001, every year on the date of that, we exchange a text, right? We, we, we get together. Um, there's a, you know, a Army Special Forces guy who he and I talk every two, two months or so. Uh, and then a, a Navy SEAL that I worked with for many years, uh, he and I exchange communications three, four, five times a year. And a lot of it's like, hey, man, thinking about you, how you been? Um, you know, I appreciate our relationship and the things we've done together. Um, and, and while I will tell you I was raised by some great uh, senior NCOs and officers in combat control, and I had a lot of peers that really pushed me hard, I learned as much from my teammates in the other branches of the service. Um, so like they, they all shaped me. Um, so I, I think it's something we do pretty well. Um, I, I see all the time on social media where guys like Matt Mueller and, um, his special forces team will exchange a communication about a key date when they were in a, a certain battle. Right. And they'll, they'll say something like uh, most impactful day of my life. We'll never forget. And all these other guys who I don't know that I believe are special forces guys will weigh in and they'll all communicate. Right. Um, so I, I think that's there. And um, the job we do is tough, right? The, the, the pipeline is two years with an 85% washout rate. Uh, it's very, very difficult. Um, 
then when you start training with other guys, we're doing training that is dangerous, right? Um, you know, Jack Fanning, who's, uh, you know, a guy who I admire, um, he's paralyzed for life from a training accident, mm-hmm. right? Um, so the training we do is tough and dangerous. So when you're, when you're doing difficult things with other people, regardless which branch of service they're in, you naturally form deep bonds. Um, and, and I think combat control has done a good job of making itself a critical component in on the battlefield. I think people realize it. And, uh, you know, you're out there and you get all these experiences and you build solid relationships. But to your point, um, keeping those relationships and, and, and making yourself value-added. And, and one of the things I tell people all the time is, we're not just air traffic controllers. We're not just guys who put bombs on targets. We're out there as advisors with a very special skill set, and our job is to help our partners solve complex problems, usually in a very urgent uh, environment. Right? Um, and, and you can look at the evacuation of Afghanistan this year, um, in, in August this year. Right? Um, at the national level, our leaders made a lot of really uh, questionable decisions, but at the tactical level. Combat controllers on the ground were working with their joint partners, Marine Corps and the Army uh, and other special operations units who are out there to go, man, we have this shit show going on. How do we do this safely and how do we turn chaos into calm? And, uh, you know, I've heard story after story and I've actually talked to people from other branches of service that were on the ground about what our guys were doing. And while I won't get into that because that talks to tactics, techniques and procedures, I will tell you that those guys did a phenomenal job. Um, I actually had um, a ranger who I parachuted into Afghanistan with in October 2001, October 19, 2001. He was on the withdrawal in July of this year. And he reached out to me and said, hey, man, I just want you to know that the guys got us out of country as well as you guys got us into country. That's incredible, right? Uh, here's a guy who 20 years ago I worked with, and he remembered all the things we did and wanted to thought thought enough of it to reach out to me to tell me the guys are still doing good. So, um, yeah, the relationships are absolutely there. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because the, um, you know, we just, just like what I talked about, we, we get uh, messages from people saying, Hey, you know, maybe they don't like the previous administration or maybe they don't like the current administration or, or kind of the direction the military is going, but, you know, so they're concerned about it and they're worried about joining and stuff like that. But the reality is, um, okay, whether that was uh, the withdrawal was done correctly or poorly or whatever, I mean, everybody's got their own opinions on it, right? But it didn't matter for the folks on the ground. Like, it's unfortunate that they were put in that situation. It really is. Like, that is, you know, that is a very unfortunate situation. But they had a tactical problem and they, they problem solved it and they did phenomenal work. And that's, that's from the controllers to the PJs to everybody that, I mean, even um, I want to say DRF was out there uh, from the 82nd airborne. They were out there. Like everybody was out there doing good work. The C-17 pilots, that one that was kind of packed and loaded up and had body, you know, people hanging off of it and stuff that was right here out of McCord. You know, those crews did a phenomenal job. And then the people that met them at whatever country they landed in that were helping to provide medical and, and um, you know, resilient stuff for, for the crews and, and the passengers, incredible. So the members are doing phenomenal work regardless of 
whatever the administration is and whatever senior military leadership, um, you know, good, bad, ugly uh, decisions that are being made. The, the people on the ground are still the one and in the air are still making things happen and doing a phenomenal job. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I couldn't agree uh, more, actually. Um, and, you know, if somebody were to tell me I'm not joining because I don't like this administration, I tell them they're, they're short sighted. Right. Because, uh, you know, I joined under George Bush. Then I got to live through you know, the Clinton years, uh, which brought all kinds of, you know, interesting political crap. Um, then the, the next Bush came in and then, you know, Obama. <clears throat> While those things matter, who's leading the country matters. Um, at the at the tactical level, what matters is do you do your job, right? And, and combat controllers live in the seams of conflict, right? Whether it's a humanitarian crisis or it's a, a, an actual, you know, full-on conflict, um, you find combat controllers at these key nodes with different branches of service and they're able to communicate to each other and help solve problems pretty quickly. Um, if you, again, if you go back and read Dano's book, Alone at Dawn, in the early stages of war up in the North, where we had guys, there were guys deployed with small teams that didn't know each other were there. And they ended up talking to each other while they were on these observation points, dropping bombs. They realized, hey, that guy I used to work with is over there. He's a combat controller. And now we start working together to bring an aircraft sequence and put bombs in the right spot. You know, you might have to talk about what each team's doing so we can all maneuver, you know, at least some level of coordination. Um, mm -hmm. You know, <clears throat> that that only happens because you have combat controllers who know each other and understand each other's tactics, techniques, and procedures and can integrate with the, the people they're with, whether it's a, a CIA team or a special forces team or a SEAL team or whatever other type of team it is. Um, and it, it absolutely speaks to how we can have an inordinate effect on the battlefield. No, and, and you know, while we talk about problem solving, um, you, since your transition from the military, um, you know, you, not just you, you know, a whole team of folks, but you're currently the uh, Combat Control Association and Combat Control Foundation uh, president, unless I'm mistaken, but like, you know, we ha after 20 years of combat, there has been a lot of injuries, whether it's, um, you know, TBIs or traumatic brain injuries, or, you know, you talk about Jack Fanning, training accident, paralyzed for life. Um, there's, you know, uh, members that have been, you know, killed in action. So they've left their families, spouses, kids. Um, I mean, and it's, and it's ongoing. There's always issues, right? And it's the, the Veterans Affairs good, bad, or ugly that, you know, can't handle everything. So there's private organizations like the Combat Control F Association and the Combat Control Foundation and the Pararescue Foundation, all that kind of stuff that um, do really good work. So I wanted to make sure that we highlighted that because you guys are doing some phenomenal things. And what I'd like to do is have you t tell us a little bit about the Combat Control Foundation, but I also want to go into some specific stories and some of the things, you know, without the names yeah, yeah. of what you guys have done, because you're doing really good stuff out there. Yeah, no, it's perfect. Thank you for that. And, and, and I will tell you, that's the most important thing. Like my, my past career, kind of cool, maybe get some people's attention, but really the most important thing is what the foundation is doing in my, in my world today. Um, so I came onto the association almost four years ago. Um, and 
an association is a 501c19, and it's really about getting people together and taking care of each other, but uh, it's more fraternal, if you will. Um, and, and through that vehicle, we were trying to take care of people, but um, when you go to try to raise funds, people aren't apt to raise funds through a, an association. It just, it, it almost screams, you're asking me for money so you guys could drink together, right? Uh, whether that's what we were doing or not is irrelevant because it wasn't what we were doing, but it, it's just hard to raise money through that vehicle. So uh, for the last three years, we've spent a lot of time um, standing up our 501c3, the Combat Control Foundation, which is really where I want to focus my attention because that, that, that's where we're starting to really make a big impact. Um, both organizations work together, the Combat Control Association and Foundation. We actually, the, the charters are built so that they work like this. They are integrated. But the foundation is our funding arm, our, our money-raising uh, function to be able to then take care of our people. But what, what, what was happening historically is we would raise enough money to handle certain problems throughout the year. So, uh, you know, Jack would, Jack got in his accident and somebody would go, hey, man, Jack's paralyzed. We need to do something for Jack. And we would pass around the hat inside our own community. And we'd get that money and we'd take that money and go do something good for Jack, Maylan, and his, his son at the time. Um, but it was very limited as well because we only had so much money. Um, we're now at the point where we're actually hosting fundraisers periodically throughout the year and we're raising meaningful money and we're starting to put together programs. So now we go, okay, if a guy gets injured, what does that look like? How do we help them? Um, if a, a person dies, how do we reach out and help his family in a meaningful way? Writing a check doesn't solve problems, right? So how do we programmatically help them? Uh, we've created scholarships for, um, wives and children. And that's important. Why? Because our combat controllers, right? The guys who work for you right now are gone 200 days a year. Um, and they don't make an incredible amount of money. They make decent money. You know, they, they make enough money to take care of their families. But uh, when, when their family members look to go to school, we can help with that, right? So those are the things we're doing. Um, I'll tell you, we just launched a survey to all the wives and the, the feedback we got was incredible. Hey, we now are at a point where we create programs. What are the things that you would like to see given the hardships that uh, families uh, go through? And they gave us a lot of good feedback. So we're starting to work through programs. You know, an example is um, just this week, we had a, a, a teammate of ours reach out. She's a guy I was stationed with back in the 2009 to 2011 time period. And he called me and uh, we, we talk about once a year. So it didn't surprise me to call me and, and as soon as I got on the phone, I could feel there was something going on. I said, I said man, what, what's happening? He said, man, he said, I'm embarrassed. And, and he said, but I am in a tight spot. I need help. So, okay, well, let's talk about what that means. And um, he was medically retired due to injuries, a lot of TBI and PTSD. Um, the Air Force was very quick to separate him, right? It wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't like you're a bad guy when you're out here. It was like, hey, here's, here's a medical evaluation board. We're separating you. They separated him. <clears throat> he literally separated October 2021. He still doesn't mm. have a retirement paycheck because the Air Force is yeah. quick to follow up with that. Uh, and it's not the Air Force institution. Right? I, don't, I don't want to see the Air Force institution is failing, but he literally has slipped through the cracks. Um, so we said, okay, what, what's going on? He walked us through everything. And we were able to get him some bridge money to, to take care of things that have just accumulated in the four months of the Air Force has elected not to pay him. We also then reached in through some of our teammates in the TACP Foundation into the Air Force and found a, a point of contact and said, hey, here's what we're going through. 
And that guy jumped right in and immediately started getting balls rolling. So we think within the next 30 days, this is going to be a fixed issue, right? And those are two very distinct things we did for this teammate of ours who slipped through the cracks. The VA didn't purposely or maliciously do anything wrong. The Air Force didn't purposely or maliciously do anything wrong. The fact is, is his problems were very real and acute to him. And we were able to jump in and help him assess it. More importantly, we were able to very quickly act to take some pressure off of him. Um, and and it's, it's an example of the things that we're doing. Uh, we couldn't have done that a year ago. Before we started hosting fundraisers, we, we didn't have the funds to do it. Um, now we're able to take care of things. Um, and, and I can tell you three or four other stories over just the past six weeks where those things have happened. Jack Fanning is another great example. Jack is going mm -hmm. in for a very big surgery and requires some very specific treatment that by law, the VA can't help him with. And we heard that he was having problems. We reached out and said, Jack, what can we help you with? He walked us through it. We went, okay, um, we're going to help you. And, and we were able to jump in very quickly and, and help. Um, again, it's nobody was doing anything malicious. I'm not going to sit here and badmouth the Air Force or the VA. The fact is, is they can't yeah, yeah. do everything. Um, and and there is no government institution that can move as fast as people's problems build up on them. So um, we're, we're working with people and families and, and trying to help resolve problems, take some of that pressure off so that they don't turn into bigger problems that then turn into people contemplating things that they otherwise would not have contemplated. I don't know if you know this, but one of our teammates down in Kentucky just this week took his life. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Um, and, and so that begs the question of why was there something that if we would have all known, could we have jumped in and, and helped out there? We don't know. Um, and we may never know with him, but um, our job is to prevent as many people from getting to that point in their lives. And that's what we're going to do. Um, and we are going to go raise money. We're going to build a process and programs around it. And we're going to take care of our people. I tell people this all the time. Nobody takes care of us better than us. So we're going to lead the charge. No, you, you nailed it, L.A. And, and you know, the, there's some good state programs out there for, for schools and stuff like that, for veterans, you know, in terms of disability. And, and that's, that's great because you guys, well, it's great that the states do that. I mean, that's phenomenal that those programs exist. And I, and I hope they continue to exist and that they, they get even better. Um, and you guys are operating in that space as well. You're, you have, you know, there are scholarship programs within the Combat Control Foundation. Um, I, I wasn't tracking the, the financial help in terms of, you know, some four months is a long time to go without a paycheck, like completely. Um, <laughs> like, geez, because um, most people, you know, don't have, they can't handle a $400 emergency, uh, according to the, the news sources of you know, a year ago, they were saying that. So I can't imagine what it is now, but to go four months without a paycheck and then to reach out sheepishly, reach out to you guys and say, hey, man, I'm in a tight spot. And you guys are able to, you know, move, like you said, move very quickly because the government, whether it's the Air Force, DOD, or just the government in general, it's just, it's a big ship to try and course correct and, and make things happen. So, I mean, it's phenomenal that you guys are able to flex that quickly to help with those kind of things. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, you know, he and his wife did all the right things. They saved a bunch of money. Um, a month after they got separated, a significant event happened in their life that literally depleted their savings. 
Um, so the, the nest egg that they built to help them bridge, you know, all this stuff was gone and, and they've been living week to week. So, and, and you know, first and foremost, we, we said, look, thank you for reaching out. Like we need to do this. When, when we have challenges, we got to raise our hand. Um, so thank you for doing that. And then we were able to act quickly and, and, and help him. Um, yeah, it's important stuff. Yeah. And I, I want to highlight too, cause you, you get a lot of the, um, I say the misconception, if you will, is that, you know, the, a lot of these foundations now are, are your grandfather's V, you know, VFW that's out the gate where again, like you said, it's, it's a bunch of old fogies that are retired veterans wearing motorcycle jackets and stuff like that, just sitting around getting, getting smashed in the VFW, which, Hey, if that's your jam, right on. Right. But, but that, but that's, yeah, I can't see you uh, wearing a motorcycle cut, hanging out doing that personally, but uh, they, I mean, maybe you are, but it's, that's not what it's all about. It's about helping people right. uh, the most we possibly can. And, and that's definitely something that, you know, us as the podcast want to foster and, and me as the chief uh, of the two, two right now, trying to foster that and, and get people involved because um, it, it's tough because especially right now, I mean, financially with, with inflation and everything like that, like it's, it's tough out there right yeah. now, things are more expensive than ever. So it's, it's hard to justify in your, in your own mind, trying to give to a foundation, but uh, hearing the stories, uh, you know, about Jack, about that couple that, that needed a financial help. And among the, the numerous other things that uh, you guys are, are, you know, helping with, um, it's important to, to give to these foundations because they are helping people. They are changing lives. So a lot of times you don't know when you're going to need it next. That's right. Uh, I mean, you know, I, yeah, I've got a couple more years left in the air force, but who, who knows, even while I'm serving, if something happens, uh, that I need help with. That's right. And, or anybody in your, it, it's not. Yeah. So uh, other things, happen. right. Right. These things, you know, as the same way anxiety can build on top of anxiety and cause make a problem get worse. Good things happen as well. Right. So during one of our fundraisers, and this is the first year we've ever done a fundraiser. We did it in August. Uh, and we raised uh, a pretty decent amount of money. Um, <clears throat> but other things happen. Um, one, one of the people that was in the audience has a strong relationship with Texas A&M. And, and he came up to us afterwards. He said, hey, um, I want to start fostering something here. So we literally flew down and met with the Board of Regents for Texas A&M. And Texas A&M said, man, we want to help you guys. As a matter of fact, we want to be the primary school that combat controllers, their wives, and their kids come to when they get out and we're working with them oh. right now to figure out what that looks like. Um, but we, we had a, a combat controller who had his leg amputated almost this time last year through a series of misfortunes. He ended up in the hospital for almost six months, 40 minutes away from his family. And because of COVID his family couldn't spend a whole lot of time with him and for them to stay close enough to be responsive to them cost them a fair amount of money. So we, first off we helped, uh, weigh in with, with offsetting some of that cost. Um, and then we did a couple other things to help them financially. But uh, right around the time that we started forming this relationship with Texas A&M, we brought him down to help us talk to the Board of Regents on how people can help. And he wanted to go to A&M because he wants an agricultural degree. And we're working through that right now. Like, 
he's most likely going to attend A and M. Um, it's um, it's going to be cost offset, if you will, if if not for free. Um, and, and that's <clears throat> that's the goodness in us having a foundation out there, reaching out to people and and telling our story and showing them where their goodwill can help our folks very specifically. And people want to do it. People, when they hear our story, they go, wow, we had no idea who you were, what the sacrifices of your folks are, and that they had all these needs, right? People, uh, they don't know what they know. And they think, well, you got the Air Force and the VA, they're taking care of everything. Well, they're not. And again, it's not because they're bad. They're big government bureaucracies that have rules. Um, and in between yeah. all those rules are these gaps where people can fall through the crack and bad things can happen. And we're here to help pick that up. Um, so it, it's been that, wonderful watching exactly. this happen. It's evolving. It's evolving nicely. It's got to be pretty rewarding for you as well. You and you and the other board members and, and everybody that's part of the foundation doing all that good work too. Yeah. So we, we have one Almost paid a self self healing kind of thing. <laughs> well, there, there is there's some therapy uh, that therapeutics that goes on in that. Um, we have one paid employee. The rest are volunteers. Um, as a matter of fact, we we just reached out and about forty people said we're willing to volunteer to help run programs and committees so we can better take care of our community. Um, so we're not running a high overhead, right? We, we spend some money on a website. We spend some money. We make sure we have a good accountant who keeps us clean. Uh, we have one employee who works 40 hours a week to keep continuity and all the things we're doing. Everything else is volunteers, people weighing in, trying to do the best they can to take care of all combat controllers and their families. And that's what we're going to do. And speaking of the website, what website is that? It's combatcontrol.team is, is the URL. Um, so it's pretty simple. You get there. And, and what it is, is it's a joint website with the Combat Control Association and Foundation. We don't want to have to go to a bunch of different places. Um, all donations run right through the foundation. Uh, it's 501c3 tax deductible. Um, <clears throat> again, we have an accountant. We have an auditor who comes in every year and makes sure we're doing the right things. Um, and the money goes straight to the front lines. It sits there and we, we talk about how do we best take care of our folks. And uh, when people bring problems to us, our first reaction is not to throw money in. Our first reaction is to understand the problem and then digest the best way to approach it. And and the, the last thing we talked about were, you know, we, we gave some bridge money, but we also then intervened with the Air Force. I have no problem calling the Air Force going, I'm retired Chief National Michael Monica. I have a teammate who has problems and we're going to fix this. Um, while I don't get overly enamored with my title, I do recognize that um, <laughs> it can help. And I have no problem using that for influence. Um, you know, General Goldfein, the for former chief or chief staff of the Air Force, um, is interested in being a volunteer or our, an honorary board member for us. He can't give us full time because he's a very busy person. But, uh, you know, he'll help us work through things like that. We also partner with organizations, right? So Project OVAT, One Veteran at a Time, run by Will Markham. Mm. The, that organization is focused specifically on helping veterans maximize what the VA is supposed to give them. Um, and, and that was born out of uh, <clears throat> an experience where a veteran had a rating, went in a year later to have a checkup, they said, how you doing? He said, I'm feeling okay. They immediately reduced his rating without talking to him, right? And there was a, a whole year of getting all that back. You know, if if okay for me is my norm, that doesn't mean I'm okay 
I don't have any problems. All it means is I'm dealing with what I've got right now. And the VA made a very bad mistake and, and took his benefits away and they got fixed. Uh, OVAT helps that. It helps guys who are getting out understand, here's how the VA evaluation system works. Here's what you look like. If these are real problems for you, here are the things that, that the VA needs to hear, right? When you go in for your VA assessment appointment, you're there for 15 minutes. That person who's evaluating doesn't have an hour to talk to you. And they're listening for some very key words. So if you don't understand that system, you can slip through those cracks. And we have lots of guys who've done that. Yep. So, you know, as we raise money, we, we then sent Project OVAT, one veteran at a time, uh, some money. And we said, every combat controller who retires, we want to push them through your program. Um, that way we're helping guys transition from the military to their civilian life and they get what they deserve. Um, and, and a lot of, you know, combat controllers wear as a badge of honor that, hey, my rating is 10% because I, I'm as strong as I was when I came in. Cool. If that's what the rating should be, then let's make sure that rating's there. But if we have somebody whose rating should be different, then let's get them the right rating. Um, so transition assistance is very much a big focus for the Combat Control Foundation. And we happen to partner with Project OVAT to do that. Well, transitioning is a, a difficult um, difficult arena to, to navigate. I mean, it's – and I haven't even started yet yeah. uh, because I still have a little bit longer. But, you know, in reality, okay, so say I've got two years left. Like, I, I should already – if I'm in that position, which I, you know, I'm, might might not be, but I should already start thinking about that because, um, like we talked about, the Air Force, the VA is a, is a big ship – and and it is tough to navigate, so you got to start early, um, and and ping a little often. So, um, real quick, do you what other do you guys have any events uh, fundraising events coming up? We do. We happen to have one at, at Lake Travis on, on April thirtieth. Uh, we have one in uh, Bandera, Texas, in um, October, and then we have another one in Odessa, Texas, in November. Um, we also have a, a boating company. Um, Ugly John's boat, um, who we're running a year-long campaign <laughs> with, to um, you know he wants to incorporate us into his marketing campaign, and um, you know he's donating a percentage of of dollars earned every year to help us you know build up our coffers and take care of our folks. Uh, and then we have a number of folks who reached out and said, "Hey, we want to talk about how to host a fundraiser and what that could look like." So. Um, John Glowacki, who is the CEO of the Combat Control Foundation, he is our one paid employee and he's doing a great job leading us in the future. John spent 20 years as a combat controller. Plus, um, when he got out, he has been at a C-suite level uh, in private companies and he's worked at an executive level in government uh, as well. So he really understands how to run an organization and specifically how to stand up what we're doing. So he's doing a great job of moving us into the future. Um, helping us establish a, a quality board that gives us oversight. You know, it's not four or five combat controllers who have opinions about things sitting around talking about what we're going to do. These are CFOs and CEOs and lawyers um, and general officers who are coming and going, okay, if we want to do this, here's the way to get there and do it honorably. So uh, we're learning every day, but uh, we're definitely building this organization out to be a class A organization. Um, and again, Awesome. We're not spending a lot of money on oversight or overhead. We're the money goes to the front lines to take care of the men and their families. 
No, that's that's fantastic, and you guys are doing great work, and I and definitely appreciate it. Um, so before we kind of close this out, I, I want to almost go back to the beginning and um, just to address our audience one one last time. We kind of do it with with the majority of our guests, and we kind of asked for any kind of advice that you would give. Uh, you know those our demographics, 15 to 35 year olds that are wanting to come be combat controllers, PJs, SR, tech P's and stuff like that. So what is, what is one piece of advice you would give to them? Yeah, so I would say, <clears throat> don't get enamored with what a book says or a story you hear. Like, um, you know, cause a, a lot of people, and I get this all the time, Hey, I'm trying to decide whether I want to be a, a SEAL or Ranger or a combat controller. And, and my response to them is, well, what do you want to do when you get on the ground? And they, they kind of look at me and go, what do you mean? I said, well, while we all work together, we do similar things. We all jump and dive and, you know, rappel out of helicopters and fast rope and ride motorcycles, all kinds of things. Those are ways to get to work. When you get there, what's the job you want to do? Like, do you want to kick in a door? Do you want to climb up the side of a ship? You know, what is that thing? And and that usually becomes an eye-opening moment. So I would say do some research on what's the job you want to do. Uh, and then don't believe all the bullshit, right? Um, books are read to sell, or books are written to sell books and movies are written to sell movies. And there's a lot of crap in there that is um, overstated, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I would offer is focus on being as good as you can. The internet is full of great information about how to prepare for the pipeline. Take that serious. You have to dedicate yourself to it. Um, you know, you and I know very well that the second doubt starts creeping in uh, when you're in the pipeline, because they're difficult schools, right? 85% of the people who start don't make it. And it's a marathon of sprints. The day you start to two years later, when you complete, you start a school, you're a dirtbag, you work your way up to being an okay person, you graduate that school, you go to the next school, you're a dirtbag again, right? You know, keep working your way up. So it's this marathon of sprints for two years. <laughs> that you've got to go through. Um, if you are not mentally, physically, and emotionally invested in doing this, you're not going to graduate. Um, most of the guys, in my opinion, who didn't graduate, didn't fail because they weren't capable. They left because they didn't truly understand what they were getting into, and they weren't as dedicated to it as they thought. So if this is what you want to do, you got to invest yourself. It takes work. Um, and then at the end of the day, just don't quit. Um, I was the bottom of my in-doc class. 15 guys graduated, I was number 16. But it's, I was that far down the list of, of, of guys. Uh, but at the end of the day, I wake up every morning and go, or at the beginning of the day, I wake up every morning and go, I'm gonna make it through today. I gotta make it to lunch. If I make it to lunch, I'll be good. And I made it to lunch, I go, okay, I just gotta make it to the end of the day. Whatever end of the day meant, whether it was you know, five o'clock or 11 o'clock because Cadre decided they were gonna have us doing stuff. Um, and I, I did that <laughs> straight. Um, if you really wanna be there, then, then invest yourself in it. Uh, last thing I'll tell you is the best decision. I don't know a guy who came in to this community, whether combat control or special forces or Marines or whatever it is, who comes up the back end going, that sucked. I, I really didn't enjoy that. We all come out better for it. So um, I would encourage anybody to do these jobs, um, specifically combat control, because we do things that nobody else does. There's 400 of us in the Air Force. There's nobody in the U.S. military that does what we do. And there's very few other people on the planet could do what we do. Um, so it's a great, unique job to be in. It's, it's extremely satisfying. You know, if you look at a humanitarian mission, right? Uh, while we were evacuating 
Kabul airport, we were also providing humanitarian relief in Haiti, right? At a port of Prince Haiti. Yep. Um, both very reward, rewarding missions and, and things that happen on the global stage. So things you're able to impact as a combat controller are just incredible. So those are the things I would offer uh, any young man or woman who's looking to get into special operations and I'll make an extra strong plug for combat control. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I don't know how I'm supposed to close that up or follow that, but awesome. Uh, really appreciate you joining us, LA. Uh, for all those out there, that is combatcontrol.team. Uh, please feel free to donate to them, check them out. And, you know, even if you don't want to donate, attend some of the fundraisers because they're good events. Um, and you guys have got some up and they're up on the website. So if you guys want more details, go there and check them out. And then uh, we appreciate you joining us. Thanks for listening. Later. Have a great day.